You know, when Bill and I first got together and we decided we wanted to start doing this little endeavor of the podcast, Nightmares on the Lost Highway, we thought it would always be fun to include our personal encounters. And we've shared some of those uh, throughout the years with you. We hope that you'll give it another listen, possibly, or a first listen. Yeah, the, these are stories that, that Eric and I either personally encountered in our in our lifetimes or, or sometimes related to us by, by very close friends or family, people that we know and we trust. Just real life encounters with, with, with things. Maybe not even the unknown, but just real life encounters. Straight from the horse's mouth, so to speak. So, thanks for listening. From a child born into this world, we are taught what to believe. Close-minded, we become fearful to be deceived. Still, we desire to know what lies beyond that locked door. The art of the storyteller conjuring tales of legend and lore. History hidden, lost knowledge, things forgotten, and the unknown. These are the things that direct us and will set the tone. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. We used to go camping yearly on Lake of the Ozarks when I was growing up. I don't remember ever seeing jellyfish. I will say I saw a giant catfish, but of course I was probably five, six years old, and my uncle caught, I'm going to say, probably a three-foot catfish. So <laughs> Giant. I mean, it was big to me. Big to you. I remember uh, with my uncle and my dad, we used to run uh, trot lines and, and uh, limb lines and stuff, and it was nothing to go down the rivers, and we'd be able to pull up, you know, 18, 24-inch catfish. And, I mean, they put up a heck of a fight. I can only imagine, you know, a 6-foot or 12-foot <laughs> or, or larger size. It would be just gargantuan. And I don't know your own personal experience, but I've, I've been out on the lake and, and at night, and when it's dark and quiet and you just hear the water lapping, I can't imagine hearing yeah. ghostly church bells. And then you got giant catfish, piranha, <laughs> and now we've got church bells beneath. Yeah, I'd, I'd have to get off the water. I've actually been told, um, I don't know how scientific it is, let me state that, but basically as you measure the tooth at the angle from the base up to the point, approximately for every inch, they're thinking that would be a, a dimension of 10 feet. I know my wife and I, we traveled to North Carolina just last year and uh, was lucky enough to meet up with uh, two professional divers. I got I to gotta say this, this story makes me jealous when you tell it. Oh, well, so. it makes me happy to make you jealous. <laughs> We uh, actually, my wife also kind of likes the Megalodon, not to the point that Bill does, but um, I had secretly arranged for this meeting to kind of take place uh, to go purchase some Megalodon fossils. And uh, again, this is a couple, husband and wife. Um, he is a uh, retired Navy diver, uh, owns three, I believe, of his own uh, now ships that basically take care of salvage crew kind of uh, operations but uh, one of the side operations that they do is they die for megalodon teeth and then they resell them on the market super nice people they invited us to their house i was just it was crazy it was like a museum at their house um, he has dove all over the world actually has all kinds of artifacts from shipwrecks but we walked into the back room area and they're like you're going to want to see this I want to see it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> my wife's and my mouth hit the floor. We walked into the back room, and I kid you not, there was probably 500 megalodon teeth. 
and they have them categorized by the sizes. And, and yeah, the largest they had found to date was about a six and a half inch. Um, and they, we also kind of talk, well, how big can these get? Well, it's, know, it's my understanding that anything five foot or, or five foot, five foot, <laughs> that would be huge. Anything five inches in, in that community is considered large. Yes, absolutely correct. Um, and they said, yeah, like, I, I don't remember the exact, but like six inches, just right over six inches was the largest they had ever found. They find a lot of three inch, three and a half, you know, pushing four, uh, like you said, get up into the five inches and stuff. And that's kind of how they value, uh, obviously the rare ones. Oh yeah. A, a pristine seven inch tooth is oh, like tens of thousands. Yeah, almost miles. untouchable for folks like us. It was, it was interesting talking with them, um, where they find this is diving off of North Carolina coast. It seems to be one of the hot spots. You had mentioned the Megalodons uh, seem to like kind of uh, shallower waters, warmer waters. And he said most of the teeth and the diving that they find is actually in about 30 to 50 foot deep water. Uh, and underneath the, uh, the ocean basically he says it's, there's cliffs and bluffs and he would find a lot of these basically secured to the cliff area. And you'd have to chisel them up. I mean, it's not like you just dive down and, you know, start picking them up and throwing them into a bucket. I mean, part of the reason why I got into studying the supernatural and stuff was my own near-death experience where I was pronounced dead on the operating table. And you hear, you know, the many, the stereotypical is you'll see the bright light. Well, you'll have the ones that's believing that's the bright light welcoming you into the, the gates of heaven or Valhalla or whatever your beliefs may be. And then you have the scientific well, that's your brain starving of oxygen, and there's the scientific reason yeah, of what. And all your all your little neurons are firing. Yeah. And, so we're still having but, that debate today. I mean, absolutely. E even I would lay claim to saying I've had a couple of what I would call prophetic dreams. I mean, maybe I certainly didn't you know see any major events, but just something like you know maybe I one particular example is you know I had a dream one time that a, a friend of mine had come to me and said he had bought a his parents had got him a new video game. Mm -hmm. And I mean, literally that week in school, that particular friend came to me in almost the exact same manner and said, hey, look at this new video game I got. Dee -dee -dee so, dee -dee -dee -dee. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's definitely some questions there that we don't have answers to. Yeah, yeah. I know for many years, similar but kind of off the subject, we talked about dreams. I, uh, I had super vivid dreams myself, but what was really weird all the way up to probably my mid-20s, I would have a reoccurring dream at the same location with the same people. And there was a part of me that I, I never fully understood it, but it seemed so real to me. I literally got maps out and was trying to figure out where this was because I wanted to visit it. I, I would show up and it was a very rural farm, long uh, driveway leading up to this uh, single level house. Uh, kind of a tractor in the barn off to the side, tire swing hanging, very Americana, you know, type of deal, hay barns. But this was like I was visiting family, ancestors. And I would get to the house. I would always kind of go through the garage up into the kitchen. There was an older lady there, and she would always be like baking something or cooking. If I got there at different times of the day, she'd oh, I just, you know, she'd call me by name. I just made breakfast, you know, have a seat. Or, hey, I just made these fresh cookies and i imagined her it felt so much like family like it was a grandmother possibly a great great grandmother but i have to say it was modernistic i mean it seemed like the present day and then there would be an older man that would usually come in out of the field or he was out in the working on the tractor or whatever and he was very much a grandfather figure 
And it got to the point where I would revisit this dream so many times, but I would awaken and not have the answers. So I would like, okay, now the next time when I go into this dream, I remember there was pictures hung on the wall. So I literally, in the dream, when this little old lady would go to the kitchen to get me some cookies or apple pie, I would like you know, sneak up out of my chair and go over and try to get to the wall to see the pictures, see if I could recognize any of them. And it, they would always be like blurry, where I couldn't make out the image. It was like, ah, oh, darn it, that didn't work. So the next time I would go in and be like, I remember there was some mail setting on the kitchen table. I'm going to look at the address on it, see if I can get a name. And it's all blurred. And there was always some reason, like she would come in and pick up the mail mm-hmm. right as I was going to reach it, or it would be blurry. Well, or... I'd always read that you couldn't read in a, in a dream, and that's how you knew the dream wasn't real. Oh. Because your mind can't process Fine that detail. kind of symbolism when you're in that that level of unconsciousness. Now, I don't know what, what I was connected to or what IP address I was using for that, but I thought that was so odd. I had no fear whatsoever. I felt very much at home. Um, but, I mean, there was no doubt it was family of some sort. I, and, again, it was it was the same modern day. I, I bet literally I had that dream 40 or 50 times in my life. Slightly ver- different variations each time. Well, see, I have a, a common place that I tend to, to dream about. I don't want to say it happens all the time. Maybe once a year. But it's a bookstore. And I find myself in the same bookstore. About this. On a, on a regular basis. And I know the layout, and it's kind of a modern store, like a Barnes & Noble type thing. But, yeah, it, it's sort of a recurrent location. It, if not, like, it's not a recurring dream. It's not the same dream, but I find myself in the same place. Exactly. Exactly. So you take a simple question of, is it Berenstein or Berenstain? <laughs> look where and we've went. You, like I said, you, you follow this little rabbit hole, and you can end up talking about all kinds of things. You know, I, I like I've got some notes here, but... You know, they don't even really touch on anything that we're talking about. <laughs> you know, like I said, I, I, I look at some examples. Like myself, I've been dealing with this, my own Mandela effect thing for a while now. And I've, I've talked to Eric about this before. As a kid, I, I used to read these books about the unexplained and monsters and, and whatnot. And I know that I've seen a photograph of a Thunderbird. Uh, from the old West days, there's probably like a dozen cowboys have this thing spread out. And it looks like a, a pteranodon, a pterodactyl. Yep. You know, when we look at the fossil record, it's got the membranous wings and the weird head crest and all that. It looks like a pterodactyl. Now, how in the big picture. do you remember this compared to the, the cowboys? Well, I, I remember them standing, you know, in a line. So you've got 10, 12 guys standing in a row with this thing stretched out. Okay. And, you know, one 20, guy at either 20, end. 20, 30 foot length wingspan. Pretty, pretty significant sized bird or, you know, creature. Yeah. Now, I have even found on the internet where people swear up and down they've seen this photo. Now, I, now mind you, I don't remember seeing a physical photo but i remember seeing like a picture in a book right but there's argument on the internet that this photo doesn't exist there's only an artist rendering now i remember seeing a photo as a kid in a book so this is my own like little mandela effect but obviously it doesn't just affect me and and i say do this you still believe in santa full-grown adult human being Uh-oh, here we go. 42 oh, years God. on this planet Uh-oh. as a child i remember this is a memory it's in my brain this is it's there. I follow. I follow. As a child, maybe five, six years old, my parents were still married, so I had to be very young. Uh, we were standing in the front yard on Christmas Eve in front of our trailer. I could give you almost the address of where we lived, but it was in, in well, in the area known as Buckhorn now here in Missouri. My dad was talking to our next door neighbor, who's I was friends with his son, and I remember looking into the sky and seeing something I couldn't explain fly overhead. As a child. Chuck that up to being Santa Claus. The magic of Christmas. And I still tell my kids that story. Say, hey, I, I saw Santa Claus. Now, what did I really see? 
I, I don't know. And I, I'll share a personal story. Um, as we did our little introductions when we started the podcast, I'm a amateur ghost hunter. And on one trip, a good friend of mine, Mark Wilson, and uh, myself and my wife, we went up and stayed in St. Louis, Missouri at uh, the Limp Mansion. Uh, it's actually one of the considered most haunted spots in America. Yeah. Um, and we were downstairs in the bars after hours, which you're allowed free reign of the area if you're staying there in one of the rooms. And we caught on camera a, uh, a short shadow person. And I remember it very well. Um, again, the shadow people, they seem to all be short. I don't know. That That's in weird. In that parallel universe, it's, it's against the law, I guess, to be tall. I don't or know. maybe the average human height or whatever they are is just lower. But this shadow person we caught on the camera. Again, we did not see it. In real life, we could only catch it on the camera, but we both commented that we felt something. Like, we, we, there was a reason why we pointed the camera in that direction and not knowing what we would catch. But in the lower area of the bar there at the Lent Mansion in St. Louis, there's several pool tables. There's kind of a little gaming area as well as the restaurant. And this shadow person, probably oh, four foot tall, kind of more than a walk, a fast trot, kind of goes behind a couple of the pool tables. And then there's a flight of steps that go up and leads to a sidewalk exterior door. And we remember on the camera, it just kind of zipped through. It did kind of turn its head and look towards us like it acknowledged us. And then I won't say went up the steps. It like went through the steps and then just vanished. You'd say maybe whatever timeline or, or alternate universe. That well, was that was 3.3 me. This is now 4.5 yeah. me or 2.3 me. A funny me. story I've got to interject here, kind of along the same lines, and I hadn't thought about it until this very instance. This podcast, of course, is Nightmares on the Lost Highway. When Bill and I uh, were talking about this you know, months and months back, and it's like, hey, do we really want to do this? And we were thinking, well, what's a good title? And I actually shared with him. Yeah, like you remember this as a radio show. I remember like as a young teenager uh, saying with my grandma and grandpa overnight, and, of course, that was back in the days when you had the radio with the tuners and you could only get certain channels. And it was like some late-night radio talk show, you know, after midnight. And I remembered it was like a female voice, and she was, you know, like saying, you know, here's stories from the Nightmares on the Lost Highway. Well, then we started doing research on it because, you know, obviously I didn't want to take somebody else's title. And there was, like, really nothing yeah. of it. Yeah, no, I looked it up, too, because I, I didn't want to name our podcast the same as something else. Yeah, definitely. And then, yeah, I couldn't find any proof that this had ever existed. But it, So, like, a month later, I built, you know, and I get to talking, and it's like, I literally guess this kind of came out of a dream to myself that this was supposed to happen. We were taking, like, a long trip, uh, going to see family. I think it was in Kentucky or something, and we literally were, you know, cooped up in the same vehicle for, like, 12 hours, and it's amazing some of the topics you, you think you're not going to talk about with your father-in-law <laughs> that comes up and... He, he turned, we were kind of got off on this topic, and he turned to me and he goes, you listen to me, don't be doing that. He said, that is dangerous. Because he said, if you leave your body and something happens to your ghost, your spirit, whatever you want to call it, you you won't come back. You, know, you basically die in your sleep. Well, that's sort of the rules of astral projection. Yeah, yeah, yeah very similar. But I mean, it was again... I'm having this talk with my father-in-law, you know, 70-some years old, driving down a highway, and he just turns, and I mean, that's the way he said it to me, and it's like, okay. My father-in-law taught, like, uh, economics and things like that, and that, those were the conversations he wanted to have, so that's a little more interesting than what I had. Well, my father-in-law was in the Navy, and he talked about going underneath of uh, the United States as far as, like, Colorado and submarines, and uh, he had some interesting stories. 
Wow. Yeah, that's yeah. that's for another podcast. Now, of course, you're you're probably asking yourself, why are we talking about all the history of this particular building? Even you know, with a little bit of haunting we touched on, and uh, Eric and I thought this would be a good one to pick because we have a personal history. We with actually Moore's Mill. did our own almost. Well, you might as well say it was overnight ghost hunt. Yeah, we did an overnight ghost hunt there a few years ago. I don't remember exactly when at this point, but it was a while back. Six, seven years ago, probably. But to kind of set the stage, I want to say it was sort of this time of year, March, April, maybe. I remember it was cold. It was cold. There was still a little snow on the ground. We got there in the afternoon. We talked to the current owner, Patrick Sheehan. Very nice gentleman. Uh, Very nice. Very accommodating. He told us all about the property, uh, sort of laid out where we could go, where we couldn't. At the time, we paid $60 a head. And what we had, uh, it was... Um, me, my brother, and my sister, uh, Eric, you and your wife, and a mutual friend, and a couple of and a couple of our other friends of ours. Yep. And uh, you know, we we talked to Patrick, and he told us a lot of these things. You know, where people had seen things, where they had experienced things, hot spots, if you will. The the stairways. He said to the stairways were pretty pretty uh, pretty common place to experience things. And I might also say at that point, um, ghost hunters had already been here and filmed. We found out like. A month or two months before we were there, yeah. major renovation uh, was going on. Yeah, when we were there, there was uh, no no sheetrock on the walls. Yeah. yeah, literally open walls and you just you know exposed stud yeah. walls and stuff for the framing. But but he told us and and he he and on online in interviews that he didn't believe in any of this, even though supposedly he had almost witnessed some of these kinds of things. Yeah, I, I didn't get that part. He's like, yeah, I saw this, but I don't really believe it. Kind of. But thing. but again, we want to. You know, it was cold. It was a cold night. Oh my gosh, was it cold? Um, there was no power, so we had to rely on a on a fire in the basement. One of the things that should have tipped us off, in hindsight, I look back. He, we, when we drove up to it, we pulled off the little highway. Um, he was actually had his pickup, and he was cutting some uh, had a chainsaw out and was cutting yeah. some wood. And he was very eager, and he's like, "Hey, I'll save some of this wood for you guys tonight because in the lower level of the basement there was actually a very nice uh, rock fireplace hearth and." You might want to use some of this tonight. Oh my gosh, the, that should have went off. Uh, well, the, to say we might wanted a fire was an understatement. To oh be sure. my gosh, I've never been so cold in my life. But you know, we we spent a night here uh, in the. I would say the bottom part of the house where the fireplace is. That's probably the original house. That was the safest, warmest place and, to be, and it was definitely <laughs> well, it was the only place that was heated in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, and again, the house wasn't really insulated at that point in time. All the sheetrock was down. Yes, I mean there was gaps you could see outside yes. in certain places. Uh, we, me and my brother and sister, we staked out the the attic for a while, and yeah, you could kind of look along the eaves and kind of just see look the outside. Outdoor. And to say you could see your breath, that, that doesn't even touch it. I well, mean, it was frigid. And when we first got there, it wasn't that bad, of course. But as the night crept on, was it when we left, which I want to say was 3 o'clock-ish, Yeah, yeah we had pretty well frozen. Yeah, it was like, yeah, we're calling it. We're freezing to death. I remember we were huddled uh, together around that fireplace. We were we were taking rounds. Uh, that way we, we didn't contaminate someone else's research. Because, again, with the walls and stuff exposed, we, we were very leery of that. We wanted to be very careful of it. So, literally, there would be, like, groups of two or three that would go and do their various investigations. Like Bill had said, uh, I think you and your brother and your sister went up to the attic. So, everybody else stayed downstairs around that fireplace. And it was very nice because we I, – I remember I literally – started melting the rubber soles <laughs> off of my shoes 
because it was so oh, cold. We we couldn't get close enough to that fire. Oh, I wanted to crawl inside of it. It was horrible. <laughs> it was it was so cold. But uh, obviously, there's been a lot of renovations since then. I think he's he's insulated the walls and all that. So and we don't want to six we don't seven wanna, years ago. Yeah, yeah. we don't want to deter anybody. I, I think he still offers the the overnight stays and things like that. The price may have gone up a little since we were there. But I know our our personal you know experience. Now, I was under the impression that going to Morris Mill that was going to be the day. And Eric and I have deferring opinions on the things we encountered that night where I'm not super convinced that that was the day for me. Right. But I know that there were some incidents and, and I'll let Eric talk about a little, those a little bit. I, I think the openness of maybe is, is part of what kind of took away from the experience maybe. And I would agree with that statement. I mean, um, uh, we did the Morse mill several different locations, but one of the things that I took away from this particular ghost hunt at Morse Mill um, that, that Bill and I kind of will agree to disagree kind of thing on. <laughs> the, the flashlight the experience. The flashlight experience. Uh, some of you may be saying, oh, yeah, I already know what they're talking about. You you will take, we had like a small mag light. Uh, this would be one of those that you would screw the, the end to turn it off and on and, and the various different illuminations. That is kind of a typical test that a lot of ghost hunters use. And I had used it multiple times at multiple sites. Never got anything. Uh, nothing. Um, one of our mutual friends, Tim, and I happened to be up. I can't remember. I want to say it was the third floor. Uh, is one of the bedrooms. Wasn't it regarded as the uh, prostitute's room, I think, yes. is the way it's labeled? Yes, it is actually. That's correct. It was labeled as kind of the one of the prostitutes, the main prostitute's room. And we were just doing our normal investigation. And again, kind of going back, everyone else is downstairs in the basement well below us. Uh, but we went up and we thought, well, let's let's try this flashlight test. So you basically set the flashlight up where it's just at the point where it could turn on, but it is off. We set it on, um, I believe it was a bed that was there. And we started asking some questions. Nothing happened immediately. Uh, to be honest, we were kind of the fact, okay, yeah, once again, this, this is not going to work. And then just probably, I want to say five minutes into it, about the time we gave up, I can't remember if it was Tim or I, we, we asked, started asking the question, you know, are you so-and-so, uh, is there anyone here? And the flashlight blinks on and we're like, oh, Hey, that's cool. That's the first time that's happened. <laughs> and so then we started asking more specific questions, you know, Blink twice, for example, if you're a female. And we did that on purpose because it was a female prostitute's room. And, you know, blink once if it's a male because we thought, okay, well, you know, one blink, it's, you know, but if it blinks twice, hey, that might be something. Sure enough, it blinks twice. Um, at that time, we'd done some research. Uh, we'd read and everything. And I think we even had a name. And we asked, okay, blink twice if this is your name. Again, trying to get away from the single blink. Boom, boom. I mean, right on cue. Tim and I, we spent probably the next 10 minutes literally just asking random questions. And right on cue, there was seconds of pause, and that was it. And then it's like, oh my gosh, this is really happening. This is this is working. This is really cool. So one of us stayed, and the other one went downstairs to get the rest of the group because we wanted... But we were recording it, but we wanted everyone to be able to experience this. And I believe I was the one that stayed up there. And 
I will say not only was the hair on the back of my neck standing up because it was cold, but it was kind of, <laughs> it was kind of exciting, you know, that something had done. And again, I, I have to stress, I had used this technique many times, never had anything, but what was really cool, I'm thinking in the back of my mind, yeah, we're going to get everybody up here. It's going to make a total fool of me. It's not going to blink a single time. And I think we got everybody up and everybody at least did witness it. Now it, it started to die down. It wasn't happening as frequent and then eventually kind of faded off yeah, the same all, way it started. We all got to see it. You know, while we were there, we had some other things that occurred that night. That was just one of the highlights, if you will. We had the, the motion lights that would be there on the steps. We had those, if I remember, they were, we, we set the motion light up at the bottom of the steps and several times, um, it was the steps that was behind us as we were there by the fireplace. Several times the motion lights would just go off. Now we tried to simulate this. We obviously you could walk by it and it would go off. That's the purpose. But we, it was it was yeah, very nobody strange. would be moving. Nobody would be even on that top floor. I mean, we're way above that. And see that I can vouch for because because we we left that light set up the whole time and and you know when you were down there you were just by the fire you weren't moving you were just trying to get warm yeah. <laughs> and in that that light. I mean, we tried, like, if you were moving around by the fire, it wouldn't go off. Right. You you weren't close enough to trigger it. It was probably 15 foot away or so. And it was simulating, the best we could kind of describe it to you folks listening would be like someone was maybe passing the top of the stairway on the yeah. floor up above. Well, and, and that's it. what Patrick said. He said, you know, according to all the stories, you would encounter the most activity around the stairwells for some reason. We just wanted to make sure we touched base a little bit about what's been going on where we've been and hopefully where we're going. There's been a lot of, we've survived Corona so far. So far, knock on um, wood. And everything else that the year 2020 has thrown at us. Uh, Godzilla attacks, alien invasion, hopefully. Cthulhu sightings. Cthulhu sightings. I mean, seriously, I think we we can go on record as saying that 2020 has been a rough year. It. Uh, we seriously had, well, for, for, for starters, we lost our uh, sound equipment. Uh, it took a big dump, so we had to uh, repurchase some new recording equipment. Uh, I personally lost uh, my, at that time, full-time job due to the economy. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, been, it's been a rough year. I think anybody would say 2020, you know, uh, has been a rough one. Yeah, we'd like to go ahead and just uh, hit the reset button on it. That's not how time works. No. So we're stuck in 2020. Now, I will, I want to interrupt there, uh, one of the things when we started doing the podcast, we always wanted to say if you had a personal encounter, oh, we yeah. really wanted to kind of bring that to the table. And uh, while it's not an awe-inspiring story, I will say my wife Sarah and I uh, did have a real-life personal encounter with an unidentified flying object by every sense of the definition. Um, would have been about 1991 or 92. We'd just been married a couple years. We lived... Um, uh, in a little town of Falcon, Missouri, which is just kind of southeast of here, uh, about 30 minutes away. We had gotten home one night, and again, it's been many years ago. Some of the details are a little sketchy, but it, I know it was dark, uh, but like maybe, let's say, 7 o'clock. We got out of the car and was getting ready to head into the house, and I want to describe the area that we were at, just so everybody knows. There's there's no signs of city lights here. I mean, the driveway itself is a mile and a half long. Uh, we had a mobile home down on her parents' uh, farm at the time. Like I said, we'd just been married, just getting started out. Um, so, I mean, it's normal to have full view of the stars, uh, you know, not a pollution area or nothing like that. But we got out and we just happened to notice kind of this light greenish-blue glow around 
And it was so faint, we didn't even notice it at first. I mean, I think we had our hands full of groceries and stuff we were getting ready to carry in. And we looked up, and probably 100, 150 feet up was this, I'll describe it as kind of a heart-shaped, maybe an Indian arrowhead-shaped, glowing vehicle. I'll use your word, vehicle. Um, what was so weird was there wasn't like light sources on it. The entire thing was just kind of putting off this aura, this hue and absolutely no sound. That was so crazy. And then we noticed that, I mean, there weren't any crickets making noises. It was deathly still. And we both just kind of looked up at it and we looked at each other and it was like, you know, what the hell is this kind of thing? (laughs) And just within a couple split seconds, this thing just took off and i mean it was gone within seconds but again absolutely no sound uh i do remember like some of the trees in the distance it didn't like blow the leaves off or anything dramatic like that but there was a little bit of movement and we just kind of carried our groceries in the house set them down and of course that was the hot topic for the rest of the night uh now falcon isn't that far by the way the crow flies from a military base fort leonard wood yeah, uh, that's in Waynesville, Pulaski County. And we had a few connections up there. So the next day we called and, of course, was asking, were you guys doing any maneuvers or, or any, uh, you know, tactical training or anything? And, of course, there's the side of me that's like, if they were, they're not going to, of course, tell us. Yeah, they're not going to tell Joe. Yeah. Joe, nobody. I was like, oh, yeah, we were experimenting with some new aircraft we were flying in the area. But um, they told us no. So we kind of blew it off. and we, we kept it to ourselves. We told only our, our family members. And nobody else around there had seen anything. Uh, however, that night on one of the Springfield uh, TV channels, I think it was KY3, there was two or three people who had uh, written in and said they also had saw something similar flying over. A couple of years later, uh, I was up on the military base at that time uh, working with a flooring company that my, my in-laws own. And we were quoting, putting some installation of carpet in at at the uh, Air Force or the airport area. And lo and behold, I was looking at these pictures of some stealth bombers. And this is about two years later. And this guy walks up to me and we start talking and he goes, oh, yeah, we we have a couple of those here. (laughs) And I'm like, I'm not sure if I'm supposed to know that or not, but that's really cool. And he was super nice. Um, He goes, would you like to see them? I mean, I actually got to go out in the hangar, and there was two of them sitting out there. And this is the the wedge-shaped bomber? Yeah, I want to say it's the B-2 version. Um, Kind of a heart-shaped, if you will. Yeah. uh, Spear, Indian arrowhead kind of deal. My stepfather uh, was a retired military, and so he had to travel to the VA hospital in Columbia in a a heart condition. And he swore to, to us kids that uh one day on his way to the VA hospital he had viewed a UFO in the sky hmm. and as far as the description of it he never really said a whole lot like so there was not a lot of detail it was just it was a casual offhand hey like i saw a UFO one time on my way to the hospital <laughs> like hey, what this one time <laughs> and then that would be about the about the summation of it i mean it was just hey it was one time i saw a UFO of course a cougar out of place this is in arkansas Wildlife officials will tell you there are no cougars in oh, Arkansas. Oh, no, absolutely. Can't have those. Uh, we can even, I, I can even give some anecdotal evidence. You know, they, they say that we don't have mountain lions, we don't have cougars. Whatever. Um, and if you contact Missouri Conservation, they'll tell you we don't have a breeding population, and maybe we don't. Maybe we have a transient population, but I, I've heard some anecdotal evidence of from, from even friends of mine of 
mountain lions being sighted. I, think I have there have personally spotted one. Yeah, yep. there have been photos recently. A friend of mine even talked about having uh, a friend of his had a couple of big dogs that he kept in like a six-foot pin. Mm-hmm. And something got into the pin without opening the door, killed both of the dogs, and, and took one body. of them out. Okay, yeah. And uh, that is definitely mountain lion material. Absolutely, there. yeah. So maybe howler sightings, they describe a big cat, maybe... Well, I know we, we said we'd talk about anecdotes if we had to share them. I do have a story from years and years ago. I would have been uh, 10, 11 maybe. So I would have made my brother six, seven years old. We were in bed going to sleep. I think we were the only ones home at the time. And I remember hearing, like, we, we didn't have air conditioning. So we had the windows open. We lived kind of in the country. Mm-hmm. And I remember hearing this blood-curdling scream. Uh, just scared me and my brother. I remember us huddled under the blankets, daring each other to look out the window to figure out what that was. <laughs> Double dog dare you. And, and then, of course, you know, mind plays tricks. We could swear that we heard something under the window and, you know, maybe we did, maybe we didn't. Maybe it was windy and it was moving the grass or whatever. But we remember hearing the scream as this got out that scared us, scared us. So the next day. Being the intrepid young folk that we were, we were going to go investigate. We want to we're find out what we, what we heard or saw. So we went down by my, my great-grandfather's pond that he had, which was the adjoining property, because where else would you go investigate, sure, right? Sure, sure. Of course, we weren't supposed to be by the pond, so we were definitely, we were investigating. <laughs> but I do remember finding large prints in the mud along the banks of the pond were far larger than any of the neighborhood dogs. I mean, my, my grandpa had a, a Pomeranian. I think my, my great-grandpa had a Spitz, which, you know, I mean, those are small medium. dogs. Yeah, small to medium. Small yeah. to medium. But these prints were probably four or five inches, to oh, the wow. best of my memory. Now, filling in the gaps over the years, I've always said that maybe it was mountain lion or whatever. But right. not being able to say with 100% certainty, maybe maybe I had a howler encounter just outside of Lakeway, Missouri. Oh, there you go. I guess the only closest thing I can relate to and i wouldn't call it the howler but definitely mountain lions uh we used to live out east 32 uh here in an area by hidden valley lake and growing up out there as a teenager i uh, one summer i bucked hay made a little extra money and i would help a neighbor lady down the road uh, till her garden and on the first incident i was talking to this lady and her husband had passed away she had mentioned that one night uh, before they got their house built, they had a mobile home trailer. It was right down by the river. I mean, literally, you could throw a rock out the back window and hit the hit the water. Uh, she said uh, her and her husband was laying in bed one night, and they heard this just, they said it sounded like a sack of potatoes that was dropped on their roof. Uh, they both just kind of sat straight up in bed. He, he grabbed a, a shotgun, and whatever this was, it was walking across their roof, but said it was so heavy it, it sounded like it was like going to come through the roof with every step and said uh, the husband, you know, opened the front door, had a little front porch and uh, potted, you know, pointed the shotgun directly up above and said a mountain lion literally peeked its head <laughs> over and looked at them. They immediately shut the door and went inside. Yeah, but we don't have mountain lions. We don't have mountain so lions. That now, now that would have been back <laughs> in the, well, the time frame that she was telling me, probably the mid 1970s. Fast forward to 1987, uh, I was bucking hay one night down in that same vicinity, uh, actually adjacent to that property. It was about three o'clock in the morning. I was riding my four-wheeler back home. I uh, had worked 
all you know all day i was drenched wet with sweat there was this shadow is the best way i can describe it in my single headlight on the front of this four-wheeler you know vibrating as you're going down the country road and i'm like what in the earth is that and it was this jet black shadow and it crossed from like its rear end was touching one side of the ditch and its head was touching the other and the best i can describe it, it was a black panther i mean it was a dark mountain lion which again are supposed to be extremely rare, yeah. non-existent, but again, it was in that same neighborhood. So to me, it would stand to reason that that could have been part of the same family of, of big cats. Uh, but it just took its time. I slowed down, you know, it took its time. I slowed down a little bit. It kind of looked at me and then just darted, jumped over the <laughs> fence. You weren't worth it. But uh, I was like, here I am. I'm riding a four wheeler at three o'clock in the morning on a lonely road. And it's like, yeah, I'm getting home quick. <laughs> When we talked about doing a voodoo episode, my interest in, in voodoo actually started a very long time ago. In my teenage years, you know, we talk of voodoo pops up quite often in, in pop culture and the like. And I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but there was a video game series called Gabriel Knight. I have not. Uh, the first one was called Sins of the Fathers, and it features the character Gabriel Knight, a struggling novelist who uh, was working with the police in New Orleans to help solve the quote unquote voodoo murders. Now, in the original game, a little bit of trivia, he was voiced by Tim Curry. Mm. And then the likes of Mark Hamill and, and whatnot did voices. But this was a, a point-and-click adventure game, uh, like your King's Quest or, or something like that. When when we were playing this game, I, I didn't have a lot of patience for point-and-click adventure games. I was more of a <laughs> Doom, Castle Wolfenstein kind of guy. But if you look through the book, it had a list of, of books that were inspiration for the game. And one of those books was called Spirits of the Night, the Vaudun Gods of Haiti. Whether you believe in coincidence, kismet, however you want to phrase it. Uh, I, I joined a book club in my, my early, you know, when, or late teens when I started working. And one of the f- first catalogs I got had that exact book in it. And I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. Uncanny. So I immediately ordered it, read through it. Of course, learned, you know, voodoo is, is an, as, learned a lot about voodoo with the, the Loas being a form of, you know, uh, ancestor worship and, and things like that. So I, I had actually done a lot of reading. Well, I would say a lot of reading. I've read at least one book <laughs> on voodoo before we got here. But it definitely, you know, when when we do any topic on this show, if you can find a book that will talk about it, it's going to go way more in-depth than we, we do. We're just scratching the surface. Very much, yeah. But, like, that particular book, I mean, I think it went page by page describing different Loas and their, their realms of influence and – how to you know give what offerings to give them and there are hundreds yeah literally. and and they each have their own customized symbol to represent them that you would use if you were gonna make an altar or something like that mm-hmm. I mean here you have this video game that just kind of popped up out of the blue and I see one book title and then boom boom you know like months later a year later whatever I see that book pop up so I'm like oh okay that's interesting and again that's how most of my education in these topics you know i I find a book and i just find it interesting you know and that book i'll I'll admit is a very dry read it's like a it's more of a research more of an academic text yeah but it's still very interesting if if you have an interest in this kind of thing i'm not sure if that book can still be found but i'm sure there are dozens of other books at at least that are very similar if you wanted to to dig into it a little deeper new orleans is steeped with mystery and lore uh, when you go down there and I know you've visited, you and your family have visited New Orleans. I have yet to make the trip. And I want to very much. One of the things I insisted upon when visiting New Orleans 
is that I wanted to to be at least exposed to the the voodoo culture. And I know there's a there's a shop for the life of me. I can't remember the name of that shop. It, it probably would take just a couple of minutes to look it up. But uh, my brother-in-law knew where it was. He was taking us there. We were looking for it. And, and I will say, just strangely enough, as we're looking for this particular shop, and we're not talking about what we're looking for. He's like, oh, I know where we're going. He starts leading us through. And we run into a, a young lady sitting on a street corner. And she looks at my brother-in-law as we're walking by. And she goes, hey, if you're going to that shop, <laughs> like anything you buy, bring back to me. I'll take the curse off of it. Oh. And again, we didn't tell her where, like, she didn't know where we were going. Right. Total so strangers. Weird. Yep. Now, I will say, since I've been to the shop, I believe the movie is Hatchet 2. There's a scene where they go into a voodoo shop. The front door is the shop that I went to. Okay. The exterior shot. Now, the inside shots, a lot bigger than the place I actually went to. So right, right. There's some movie magic there. But it is a real place, and when you go in, it is, it is everything you expect it to be. If, you know, looking at a fully immersed shot. into it, yep. a lot of, uh, you know, little statues, a lot of, I don't know if fetish is the right word, but a little, you know, I mean, there, they has all these different things. And, and I've and been again, told in a lot of those shops, they have actual working altars to, there, there's an to altar the different there loas. And, and with a big sign that, you know, if you don't know what you're doing, please do not touch. Right. Uh, but there is an altar in the back and, and, and it's very interesting shop to just look around. Even if you, even if you're not into that. But. Our trip to New Orleans was just the little touristy part, and then, you know, we we came home. We didn't spend a lot of time there. We didn't do a lot of tours. Uh, we were sort of limited on the amount of time we had to spend there. So now I got to ask: Did you pick up any books or anything I, for I, research? I, I or did not. You just no. went visually, took it in, and said, well, "I'm walking away." Yeah, no, I went in the shop and I looked around and I saw the stuff and I realized one. And this goes back to the very first thing that we said after the intro: out of respect. Right. I knew that these were not, like, I, I didn't need to buy anything there. That wasn't for me. That wasn't you. Yeah. It didn't feel like, to me, at all, it, it felt disrespectful. Right. And in That's a way. Fair enough. And, and I'm not trying to, to say that to try to, you know, I'm not trying to impress anybody or anything. It just, right. I went in there, I looked at the things, and it was interesting, but it definitely wasn't my culture. It wasn't, you know, it was it, it, it felt wrong to want to buy anything. So. Right. The alternative is I have a problem with my mind and that I see things. Now, I don't do it anymore, but I used to when I was a kid. And it lasted right into my teen years. I never had that, but I will share my own little story. When I was young, I'll say definitely preteen, I'll say around 10 years old and younger, many times at night I would feel myself leave my body and I would go to other places and I think I've mentioned this to Bill before, but I would have all my senses. I mean, I could smell, hear, obviously see visual. You remember that dream for years? Oh, vividly. Astral and, projection. And like, I remember going through like the woods and ironically, it was like I was floating, but I could hear my footsteps in the leaves and the twigs crunching, either that or something was following me. I still don't know to this day, <laughs> but yeah, it, it, at first it was very scary. Again, young child trying to understand this. You would think it would be a dream, but it was so very vivid that you would remember that more than what happened truly when you were awake that day. I mean, it was that kind of a dream. And then probably by the time I was about 10 or 11, I think we kind of 
tune out some of that stuff because it's, well, you're not supposed to be, you know, having that or seeing that or, so we kind of train ourselves to turn a lot of that That, off. That seems to be a common kind of thought is that like when you enter puberty, I guess for, you know, you, you kind of lose your ability to interact and see things. And I mean, even my kids, my oldest, and you know, he will, when he was little, he claimed to see things in our house that, that we didn't necessarily see. And now, you know, as a educated college man that he is, you know, that <laughs> like he doesn't even listen to this podcast because the, the topics are so outside his wheelhouse. But you know, at the same time, this kid as a little kid claimed to have seen a ghost in our house. So yeah. sometimes yeah. I wonder if the ones that, that push it back the most or the ones that were probably the most connected. Yep. So yeah. I guess I, I'm lucky in that respect and that my brother and sister, which, which Eric knows, they are totally on board with this stuff. <laughs> they uh, went my with brothers, us on a couple ghost yeah, hunts they, and got, stuff. Yeah, they on to ghost hunts and stuff. And I remember even times where we would drive around at night, you know, just to, to get away and, and, and I think more than anything scare ourselves. But, like, one of my favorite stories is, is driving down this back road. My sister's driving. I'm sitting in the back seat. And just, you know, it was one of those little bit of fog, just spooky as could be. And I'm like, wouldn't it just be something else if something just comes swooping down out of the trees? And I mean, no sooner had I said that, this big Long old here. owl comes down and just goes right across and up over the car. My sister locked up the brakes and <laughs> she about turned and hit me, you know, because it was just the timing of it. But still, so I mean, I, I said that and then that happens. Yeah. Uh, belief systems describe shadow people. Uh, they first kind of jumped into to modern uh, prominence. Back in 2001 on the Coast uh, Coast to Coast AM radio show. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know if how many people listening to us are going to be familiar with that. Of course, radio talk predated podcasting. What? <laughs> now, I remember it wouldn't really be too far from that. My first experience with Coast to Coast AM, I was working my first job. I started, this was 95, and just kind of coasting the airwaves, sitting in my car, waiting for work to start. And I stumble across this radio show, and this guy's talking about livestock in South America being attacked by some blood-sucking creature. And I don't know about you. Wait, stop right there. We're yeah. going to listen to this. Whatever that is, got to listen to this. I think the host's name was Art Bell. Yeah, at the time it was Art Bell. Um, and I used to listen to Coast to Coast AM all the time. I love that show. We would listen to it when we went to Tennessee. We would drive overnight so our kids would sleep, and we would turn on Coast to Coast and listen to top everything from I sold my soul to the devil to portals ufos aliens the government likewise when sarah and i were traveling usually on long trips we'd seem to kind of just kind of skate across the radio stations again kids this is way before (laughs) we had satellite radio and all this and you know usually it was at late night 11 midnight and what better to do when you're driving down you know the lost highway listening to creepy stories on the radio to the best of my knowledge coast to coast am is still out there to be found uh i think it can be found online now and I know that there's probably some some um, radio uh, digital radio stations, but if you if you enjoy what we do, I, I would say Coast to Coast AM is right up your alley. Absolutely. So I'm not trying to point you in the direction of somebody else, <laughs> but anyway, we've got off on a tangent here. Uh, a good friend of mine, and actually Bill knows him too, uh, Mark Wilson, and I uh, were doing a paranormal investigation with uh, our wives up at the Limp Mansion in St. Louis, Missouri. Mark and I were doing a walkthrough 
Uh, we had some video going as well as some EVP recordings. And we were in the lowest area, the basement of the Limp Mansion there. And uh, by the way, a little plug for the Limp Mansion. You can uh, rent a room there. And basically after hours, um, there's certain areas, obviously, like in the alcohol area where they close it off. You can't go. But you have free room uh, to do investigations or whatever all night long. So it's, 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 a, it's a really cool place. But we were downstairs in the basement doing a, a walkthrough. And quite honestly, I think this was probably a second or maybe third walkthrough of the night when this area has a couple pool tables and stuff over in the area. And we both kind of caught something out of the corner of our eye, which very typical with the stories. It's kind of peripheral vision. We both saw it, which was kind of strange. We didn't know we didn't understand what we saw until we later reviewed the video camera footage, which gave us a lot better image. And it all happened so quickly. But what I can describe in our first hand, this was a shadow figure. This one seemed to be, I'll go back to D&D, my Dungeons & Dragons, wraith-like. It was small. I remember you could see basically what would be its head just above the pool table. So we're talking an entity maybe four foot tall, let's say, at, at max. It seemed to have, for lack of a better term, maybe a cloak or a cape on, and it was kind of ripped, torn kind of thing. It did not look at us. It just like suddenly appeared, walked behind a couple pool tables, went to a corner, turned its direction, and then there was a set of stairway that led up to basically the outside, the sidewalk upstairs, and it had been locked kind of barricaded off it wasn't like bricked over or anything but they just didn't use it and it actually went up the steps and mark and i both thought that was kind of weird but at the time we just saw it in a real couple split seconds we thought we saw something out of the corner of our eye a shadow we both kind of looked at each other did you see that i saw something and then we were able to we actually caught it on the video um that was a first-hand encounter I can't say any meters went off. We didn't have anything else that occurred. We didn't hear anything. Uh, it did not turn and look at us. If anything, I felt it acted almost frightened of us. And who wouldn't be honest? You know, you know Mark Wilson. But uh, well, I mean, I got Mark Wilson makes me nervous sometimes. So. <laughs> Hope um, you're listening, Mark. You know, um, one one kind of common thread I found here. In, in talking about shadow people was they do seem to be associated with the sleep paralysis phenomenon. Now, I, in my teenage years, did have a couple of experiences with sleep paralysis where there was a shadowy figure. The first time, it was at the end of my bed when I woke up. And if you've never experienced sleep paralysis, this, the, the way it's described is this is the moment where your brain turns on mm -hmm. and you're able to process sensory input mentally but your body hasn't caught up to the fact that you're awake yet. The body's not awake yet. So yeah. you can't move, but if your eyes are open, you can hear, you can hear, you can see, and you can say, okay, there's, uh, and, and typically uh, people who experience sleep paralysis do see shadowy forms. And so there were two times in my teenage years, um, and, and I would say late teens, 18, 19 years old, where I actually experienced this this experience. The first time it was at the end of my bed. The second time it was by my shoulder, like looking over me. I remember this creature, this this shape, this entity, whatever it is, looking down on me. And I could feel in my mind 
I was processing. This was a female entity. I remember so that. So you got a clear view of the face and everything. Well, see, that's it. I didn't. The, I could not see a face. Oh, okay. I mean, this is just a black shadowy thing. Okay. Now, my no, mind, no features, just my shadow. mind tells me it's female, but my, you know what I mean? Like I, I couldn't, just I couldn't tell instinct. you why I thought that. Yeah. yeah. Gut instinct. Now, in my later years, the older I've gotten, I've been able to experience uh, sleep paralysis a couple other times and understand what it is. That doesn't make it any less frightening. I, I typically would experience it if I fell asleep on the couch. Say I was watching TV, you know, and, and kind of laid back. And if I fell asleep on the couch just the right way, you know, later on, you'd kind of wake up for a moment. And Pinched a nerve or something. Maybe, yeah. But you wake up for a moment and, uh, well, like an evil dead when Ash wakes up and he's tied to the floor, Army of Darkness. Mm-hmm. He's like, oh, I can't move. Like, you feel exactly like that. You wake up, you open your eyes, you see the world around you, but you can't will your body to do anything. You're processing, but you can't move. Yeah, and it just takes a moment for you. And it only takes a moment. Once you really put the, the pieces together, then your body kind of, oh, yeah, hey, we're supposed to be uh, on the same page here. I-, I wanted to take it one step further. I'm... Um I'm one of those people who battle with sleep apnea and I will say I've been sleeping of course with a CPAP machine now for 12 plus years. But, uh, before it was diagnosed, I would stop breathing often during my sleep. And when I was in that stance, uh, I also, I had some weird dreams, I'll borderline nightmares and a shadowy figures and that type of deal was pretty common. It could be oxygen deprivation. Well, it almost sounds maybe bordering on the sleep paralysis. Yeah. you're in that in-between state. Now, I haven't had any shadow people experiences in my home, luckily. Not related here. My son did did say that, that he felt he'd seen a ghost the other night when he was getting ready to go to sleep. So he, uh, I asked him to describe what he saw. He said he was, was listening to the Hobbit soundtrack as he was going to bed. It's <laughs> <laughs> only in my home. Um, but he said he saw a gray shadowy thing move across the bedroom, like out of the corner of his eye. Well, my, my daughter in the house that we actually live in now, when she's uh, still lived at the house before she was married, um, actually it was about this time of year reported uh, to us several times that there was a ghost like apparition, kind of a shadowy figure that would appear in her bedroom and she would like wake up and it would be like staring at her. See, that, that's a very shadow person right there. But uh, later, it did have enough features that she explained it to us. And uh, to a T, she explained a Confederate soldier uh, with the hat, um, you know, some of the, the attire. But again, that one had some features. But yeah, she said, oh, yeah, that happened quite frequently. She'd just wake up and never did any harm, uh, but would just kind of be like standing there looking at her. I want to take a time to thank the people that helped bring this all together. Uh, Alex Tudor, you can almost call him our producer at this point. Sarah Tudor, who also helps with some of the technical stuff. I want to take a moment to extend thanks to Eric for letting us use his space to record in kind of our makeshift studio. I, in turn, would like to thank Bill for, one, putting up with me and uh, (laughs) using this camaraderie to do something we both very much love and enjoy doing. And thank Bill's family for allowing him to spend all the time to work and clean up our recordings and present them in what uh, you hear in the final uh, terms, uh, the final edition, if you will. And I'd like to thank all of you for continuing to, to listen. I know we've got some loyal followers out there. We do this as a labor of love. 
but we're we're happy that there are people that enjoy it as hopefully as much as we do. Thank you very much.